Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. This is London, but broadcasting to you, of course, all over the world. Thanks to the wonders of the internet, there's a poll running. Who should the UK extradite to the US? A, Julian Assange. B, Prince Andrew. C, Piers Morgan. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. I've called it for Bernie Sanders. His stunning victory in Nevada, landslide victory in Nevada, marks the first time ever in US political history that any candidate has won the first three contests, and he has already. And he's headed into Carolina, he's headed into Super Tuesday, and he will, within 10 days, almost certainly, establish a literally unbeatable lead. And therefore, unless something happens to Bernie Sanders, he is ineluctably going to be the Democratic Party nominee. And I want to take a few moments to pay tribute to what is by any standards in modern British and American and indeed world political history, an achievement like no other. This man is 77 years old. This man has a spring in his step like no man or woman half his age could possibly have after five years of unrelenting campaigning. The slings and arrows of the slanderers, of the people who would bring him down, the dogs barking at his heels as his caravan moves on. This man's achievement of standing up to the scrutiny under which he has is quite unprecedented. Bernie Sanders is a socialist standing for president in the land of Joe McCarthy, in the land of Richard Nixon, in the land of Lyndon Johnson, in the land of all of that which has gone before. He's a democratic socialist, self-defined, and he's winning out the park, the Democratic Party's nomination. His unrelenting focus on the majority of citizens in the United States, placing squarely on the proper culprits, the reasons for the widespread poverty, homelessness, hunger, lack of health provision, and all the crimes and sins of the American state over a century and more has been truly phenomenal. A laser-like focus on the 1%, comparing the lives of the vast majority 
with the lives of the billionaires, 400 of whom own most of the wealth in America, a country of hundreds of millions of people, 400 billionaires. He contrasts daily, hourly, minute by minute, the lives of plenty enjoyed by the wealthy and compares it with the life of struggle and worse of the American working class. And he doesn't eschew the term working class. It used to be the norm in American politics to describe working people as the middle class. No, says Bernie. You are the working class and it is your work, your labor, which makes the wealth enjoyed by the few. As a matter of fact, I would have advised them on two or three occasions to turn down the, the dial a bit. I was going to say bile. Stand, turn down the dial a bit on the class war rhetoric that you are employing. But he has not. Instead, he's turned it up. He's doubled down on his economistic critique of American capitalism and America's imperialist role in the world. And he's been doing it for 40 years. I really take my hat off to this man. They've all been out to get him. They've all been out to destroy him. They're still out to get him. But on and on he goes, indefatigably, relentlessly, with energy and with elan, with humor. This man is a phenomenon. Bernie Sanders is the leader that Jeremy Corbyn could have been, should have been, promised to be. He kept on going, Sanders, when he was cheated in 2016. He didn't go back to parliamentary games in the U.S. Senate. He stayed on the road. That's what Corbyn should have done when he came close in 2017. He should have stayed on the road instead of disappearing into the thick carpets of the British House of Commons. Everybody in the Senate hated Bernie Sanders. At least that's what Hillary Clinton told us. But Bernie didn't care. He wasn't talking to the members of the U.S. Senate. He was talking over their heads directly to the masses, directly to the people. He fashioned a team, Sanders, out of the people that loved him, not the people that hated him. He didn't go around saying, you hated me, you stabbed me, you plotted against me, you tried to get rid of me. Please come and sit around me and pretend that we're friends. No, Sanders waved such people away. He built a team out of those that were committed to his vision and his politics. And it's worked. Bernie Sanders never ran away. When the Israel lobby opened their fire on him, he doubled down. He said, Israel is a racist, apartheid state. That's what Bernie Sanders said. Jeremy Corbyn made it a crime. 
punishable by expulsion in the Labour Party to say such a thing. In fact, Daniel Barenboim, the maestro, the greatest musician in the world today, Barenboim, the comments he made this week about his own country, Israel, would have had him expelled out of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. Bernie Sanders learned the lesson on the streets of New York and in Chicago that if you don't run, they can't chase you. If you stand up and face them on the first day as you intend to do on the last day, you can prevail. Corbyn could have done that. Corbyn could have been Bernie Sanders if he'd kept campaigning if he'd eschewed the fake support of the Starmers and all the other backstabbers, if he'd made a tiny shadow cabinet out of those that supported him, if he'd stayed away from Prime Minister's questions, if he'd told the Parliamentary Labour Party that it didn't matter what they said, he had a mandate from 500,000 members and he was going to follow it through if he'd done what Bernie had done, we might have had the possibility this year of having Corbyn in Downing Street and Sanders in the White House. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Can you imagine how transformative that would be? Corbyn threw it all away and his own so-called friends, MacDonald and Abbott and the others badly let him down. But he could have done it. He's just as energetic as Bernie, just as dedicated to his political philosophy, just as consistent over decades as Bernie Sanders has been, but he threw it all away. Well, never mind, Bernie, I'm certain is going to do it, unless something happens to him. Now, some people don't like me talking about that, but I can still feel the tears on my cheeks when Jack Kennedy was murdered, almost certainly by the deep state of the United States. I can still feel the tears on my face when Dr. King was murdered, almost certainly by the agents of the deep state. I can still feel the tears on my face when Robert Kennedy was murdered, almost certainly by agents of the deep state. I can still feel the tears on my face, 55 years on, at the murder of Malcolm X, almost certainly by agents of the American deep state. So don't think I'm being apocalyptic, don't think I'm being over dramatic, there is a long, long list of political leaders who could have changed things being undone by the bullets of assassins. So I hope the Secret Service is looking after Bernie, but I wouldn't count on it. If I were you, Bernie, I'd use some of those dollars that you've raised in such abundance with an average donation of just $18. I'd use it for my own security detail. Don't leave it to the FBI, now will you? Speaking of the American deep state, this week in London,
the trial of the extradition application by the government of the United States for the extradition of Julian Assange begins in a tightly fortified London courtroom. Julian Assange is one of the greatest men of our age. Julian Assange is the greatest publisher that ever lived. Julian Assange is the greatest whistleblower that ever lived. Julian Assange is honest and true, and not a single word that he ever published, not one, has had to be retracted as being false or wrong. Julian Assange should be receiving a Nobel laureate. Instead, he might be receiving a one-way ticket to Sing Sing, a one-way ticket to 150 years penal servitude in the bowels of the injustice system of the United States. And for what? For publishing the truth. The truth about the criminals. Now the criminals want to make it a crime to publish the facts of their crimes. The criminals want to make sure that there will never be another Julian Assange. They want to chill the hearts of every would-be whistleblower, journalist and publisher in the world. This is an important point because Julian never set foot in the United States. Nothing that he published was published in the United States. Julian is an Australian citizen. He was working in Europe. Therefore, any publisher, any journalist working in Europe can be subject to exactly the same demand under the one-sided extradition treaty that the United States and Britain have signed. David Blunkett, the Home Secretary in Tony Blair's government, did many bad things, but no worse than the one-sided extradition treaty that he signed on our behalf in the summertime when the House was not sitting behind the backs of our parliamentarians, one of which at that time was me. A one-sided extradition treaty that means that a senior official of the CIA can mow down and kill a young British boy on his motorbike when she's driving on the wrong side of the road and escape justice in Britain, falsely claiming to have diplomatic immunity, a falsehood that the British government must have known to be false and is refusing to come back to provide closure to that young man's family by appearing in a British court and telling everyone what actually happened. A one-sided extradition treaty that supposedly excludes, indeed on the face of the treaty, it excludes extraditing people wanted for political offenses. What could be more political than the crimes that Julian Assange is charged with committing? 17 charges under the Espionage Acts, 
even though he's not a US citizen and owes no loyalty whatsoever to the United States government. It's an absurdity, it's a disproportionate act of savagery to send Julian into the dungeons of Mike Pompeo and Donald Trump never to see the light of day again. It is savagery, but worse, it's the death of journalism as we once knew it. It's the death of people telling the truth about the crimes of the powerful. Now, over the last couple of days, I sense a change in mood, a change in the wind in London amongst the media class, even some, not many, of the political class, as if suddenly there's a dawning realization that a British court is about to be asked to commit a gigantic crime, one which will make our country ashamed when the history of it comes to be written. I've noticed, and I hope I'm right, a beginning of an understanding of what's at stake in that London courtroom this week. Well, the car in front is a Sanders. He's the only candidate ever to win all three of the first three contests, and he's now looking unstoppable. I called the race for Bernie Sanders. And if he fights Donald Trump in November, this old Russian asset ploy isn't really going to work. Is Donald Trump seriously going to accuse Bernie Sanders of being Putin's man when Donald Trump has spent the last four years fending off exactly that accusation against himself? Because that's just about the only card that his Democratic Party opponents have now got. And predictably enough, the day before the Nevada caucus, along came the news in, of course, the Washington Post, that Bernie, don't you know, is a Russian asset. So that's Bernie a Russian asset, Trump a Russian asset, and Bloomberg's grandfather was born in Russia and does a very great deal of his business with the Communist Party in China. So, hey, what are we to make of all this? Well, one woman who deals with this, for whom all of this is meat and drink, I get the pleasure. Every day you've got the pleasure this week of talking with the one and only Manila Chan. Manila, welcome indeed again to the mother of all talk shows. Wonderful to see you. Hi there, George. Good to see you this weekend. Now, Manila, um, let's talk about, for a minute, Nevada. Bernie won a landslide victory. He even won the catering workers' vote, even though the leaders of the catering workers' union were campaigning against him. He won amongst young people and old people, yes. white people, Latinos, black people. He won amongst the young and the old. He won almost 50% of the vote with all the others sharing uh, the other 50% of the vote. He looks, un he looks unstoppable now, doesn't he? 
Well, to you and I, uh, because I think we're, we're uh, fair brokers in this game, but unfortunately, George, that's not going to be the ultimate decider to steal uh, the quote from George uh, W. Bush. Uh, ultimately, the superdelegates are going to decide. So right now, I can very clearly see a path for Bernie Sanders to get to the 1991 uh, delegates needed to become the nominee. Uh, but enter Bloomberg. Bloomberg has not been on any of the caucus ballots up until this point. He will begin next week in South Carolina. And then, of course, the following week on Super Tuesday. So that could really change the dynamic of this race. Bloomberg is the big question here, uh, but I think he will more affect Biden, the Biden vote, than it would Bernie. Uh, but still, he could sway a lot of moderates and, and still take a lot of votes uh, and parse them in the Democratic Party, George. He did have a disastrous debate night. Um, I, I could think of better ways to spend <laughs> $400 million of my own money uh, than to stand on a stage in the uh, Nevada debates and be literally taken apart by all of my opponents. How bad was it? Oh, George, it was the most expensive roast to ever appear on television, almost half a billion dollars. And Bloomberg, you know, not even being on the ballot, the Democrats all went after him, every single one of them. They all, you know, traded a few jabs and a few barbs here and there, but everybody was on Bloomberg. So I'm not sure if it's the, the fear and anticipation of the unknown because of Bloomberg, uh, or it's just that they know they have to combat his endless boatloads of money. Because at the end of the day, George, just like advertising from Coca-Cola or McDonald's or Pepsi or what have you, when you are bombarded, as we are here stateside, wherever you turn, there is a Bloomberg advertisement. There's, it's on radio, it's on your computer, it's on television, except for RT, of course. Uh, everywhere you turn, you find a Bloomberg ad. So if nothing else, name recognition might buy him those votes. So I think the Democrats uh, had to fight that battle before he got on the ballot. So I think that's what they were doing. But yes, oh my gosh, they, Elizabeth Warren definitely uh, won that round uh, when it was, uh, in terms of trading jabs, Elizabeth Warren had a good... Well, she had, uh, she had good cause, of course, because uh, in a tight race as it was at the time, Bloomberg put $21 million into the coffers of her Republican opponent when she was running for the Senate. And he endorsed the Republican opponent, spoke for him, organized for him. And here he is now standing beside her, wanting to be the Democratic nominee. Absolutely. But George, let's not forget his connections to the Clintons. I know here stateside, I don't know if, if anyone has gotten to see them uh, on your side of the pond, but here stateside, he is running all of his uh, visual campaigns. He's taking all of his clips from uh, his connections with President Obama and using those for his TV campaigns and any kind of print medium. Uh, but anyhow, we cannot forget that he has a lot of ties to the Clintons. He backed Hillary Clinton when she was running for state office, and they were bosom buddies there. So we can't forget how deeply vested he is into the Democrat swamp either. Now, uh, Manila, it turns out 
uh, that uh, Bernie Sanders is yet another Russian asset, according yes. to the uh, Washington Post. When I was in Russia a couple of weeks ago, there's a joke uh, that the contest is now between a Russian asset who is the president, a man with a Russian grandfather who supports Russia over Ukraine, that's Bloomberg, or a man, Bernie, who spent his honeymoon in the Soviet <laughs> Union. So Putin, Putin wins every time. Right. How serious are people taking this? What is this Russian interference that they're talking about? George, I don't know where the mainstream media is getting Russiagate 2.0, but I can tell you one thing, the American people are completely exhausted from this Russian narrative, even people on the left. I mean, I have friends on both sides, or all sides, I should say, of the political spectrum, and everybody is completely exhausted with this whole Russia narrative. Maybe some people on the left still find this a bit interesting because they're hoping to find any reason to indict Trump. But now that you want to, and now they want to indict Bernie Sanders as well, when it he's on the left, it's a little hard to swallow. It, it's kind of a it's kind of they're eating their own young at this point with the Democrats uh, publishing this from the Washington Post. But I mean, it, it is a, a Jeff Bezos owned company. And we know that Bezos has his own interest in mind, obviously, as as the biggest one of the biggest capitalists in the world. Uh, I'm sure he's not going to be very happy with a President Sanders. Well, in fact, uh, Bernie led the campaign uh, to force him to pay uh, decent right. wages to his own workers that That's made right. him the richest man in the world. That's absolutely right. So it, it doesn't come as a surprise to me as a journalist and, and, and observer, a little more than a casual observer uh, on this topic. Uh, it's no surprise to me that The Washington Post would publish something like that. Um, it's almost at this point, it's almost are you cutting off your own nose to spite your face because you hate Trump so much? but then you also hate this uh, very old school, liberal, very progressive Bernie Sanders who's been harping on the same stuff for 40 years, who's never changed his tune. Well, here he comes blasting through what the DNC wants. And I still, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put all my eggs in the, the Bernie basket, George, let me tell you. I, I, you still I think, think the they might try to cheat him? I absolutely think they might try to cheat him. And I don't know if it's going to come in the form of, of a Bloomberg with his boatloads of money or if it's going to come in the form of a, a Biden Buttigieg uh, campaign. Up, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. perhaps because they are, you know, they, they, they are right down the line with what the DNC wants. Um, I think right now they have to recalibrate because Biden has done so poorly in the polls. He's expected to do well next week in South Carolina. But the fact that he's he's had such a poor showing the first three races. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Uh, the DNC might have to recalibrate about who they might throw their weight behind. Yeah. And in fact, just moments ago, before I got on air with you, George, uh, we've already heard from the Buttigieg campaign saying that he, the, he wants the DNC to get involved now because he believes that Bernie Sanders did not win and could not have won with such a landslide in Nevada last night, and that he wants the DNC to do a recount. Uh, okay. Uh, now, yes. um, tell us uh, on this side, forgive our ignorance, uh, what kind of place is South Carolina? I think it's a state that most British people will not know much about. Uh, nor most Americans, George. South Carolina is a, a very deeply red state. Uh, it, it hasn't voted blue in, in I don't know if it ever has, to tell you the truth. But it, it's a red state anyway. It's, it's expected to go Trump. Um, but anyone that's a Democrat there is not likely to back uh, Sanders because of his self-proclaimed uh, democratic socialist uh, label. I think South Carolina will either go, most likely go to Biden or maybe Bloomberg because of name recognition. Uh, but because the Democrats there, I would say, are more of a blue dog Democrat than they are uh, lefty-leaning any, any way. And what's it like uh, racially? I, I mean, I'm assuming, uh, because uh, Biden was saying so, uh, that, uh, that it's quite a black state now, is it? Uh, it's still majority white, but there is a, a lot of black voters there. Uh, obviously, it's a southern state. There are a lot of African Americans across uh, the South. Uh, but, but the numbers are starting to change in, in who younger black voters are voting for. The older black voters uh, stick with your, your Bidens and, and your Bloombergs and, and whoever else the DNC churns out. Uh, but younger black voters, uh, I would say race aside, they skew with, with wherever the young vote falls. And in this case, it's going, going towards the oldest man running the for the office. The oldest man ever running. There's hope for us all yet. Uh, uh, not you, of course. I refer to myself. Uh, <laughs> now, um, uh, finally, Super Tuesday. Why so-called? And how many states are involved, Manila? Oh, George, Super Tuesday, because there are 14 states involved. And these are some of the, the biggest states in the union. California is up for grabs. Virginia up for grabs, Minnesota, Michigan, uh, Arkansas, in fact, a lot of the South, um, but California is where the eyes need to go. Right now, it looks like, it looks like Bernie Sanders will take California. Uh, he, he was very close last go around, uh, but Hillary Clinton is an establishment name and, and it went that way for her. But Bernie Sanders has a huge, huge, big, big supporting group, especially with the, the Hollywood liberals. Hollywood liberals love Bernie Sanders. They, they like Warren too, uh, but it's looking like California will go to Bernie. That will give him 
the wind beneath his wings that'll put the wind at his back and propel him forward. That's what he needs. Super Tuesday. Bernie needs to clinch California and Virginia. And that is a week on Tuesday, is it? March 3rd, I believe. Yeah, my yeah a, week right. on, a, week on, a week on Tuesday. But we've got to look forward to South Carolina first. Well, first, next uh, Saturday. Manila, that's been really helpful. Thank you very much indeed for joining us again on the mother of all talk shows. And I'll talk to you again in a different power relationship on Monday, God willing. Thank you very much you indeed. Too. Thank you. Thanks, Manila. And the mother of reportage about Syria is with me in the studio now. Eva Bartlett will look young to you to be the mother of such reportage. But given the scale of the mendacity that we have been treated to over the last, well, now eight or nine years on the Syria question, it has been so vital that people like Ava Bartlett, Vanessa Beely, and only a handful of others have been prepared doggedly to represent the truth in the face of falsehood. It's an organized falsehood. I want to make that absolutely clear. Uh, this is not journalists making mistakes. This is not teenage scribblers that don't remember 9-11 and Al-Qaeda and bin Laden and so on. Uh, this is not uh, ingenues who don't know the difference between ISIS and Al-Qaeda and a moderate opposition. Uh, this is systematic, paid-for, deliberate falsehood to deceive the people of the world into believing that the conflict in Syria is an existential one between a brutal dictatorship in Damascus and freedom fighters uh, on the other. Even though those freedom fighters have themselves filmed themselves, cutting off the heads of children, eating the hearts of slain combatants, phoning the mothers of soldiers they've just killed to tell them that they had just decapitated the woman's son. Uh, this is a deliberate state policy of disinformation, misinformation, deception, and evidence now abounds of fake attacks, fake chemical attacks, fake actions of all kinds, mounted with the active, as an active operation uh, by Western governments. Eva Bartlett has stood firm against this organized deception from the beginning, and now she's being vindicated on a daily basis. And it's a real pleasure, an honor, in fact, Eva, to welcome you to the mother of all talk shows. Thanks for coming. We're going to be speaking on the same platform on Tuesday for Julian Assange. And uh, we have uh, a guest later uh, to talk about Assange. So I'll concentrate on uh, another of your areas of expertise, namely the conflict in Syria. Somebody wrote just a few minutes ago from Ireland to say that she had long admired uh, Erdogan, uh, but now that she sees what he's doing uh, in the Idlib province uh, of Syria, she's confused. What is actually happening in Idlib? 
Idlib is one of the last strongholds of terrorism in Syria, and notably one of the major, the major strongholds of al-Qaeda or al-Nusra in Syria. And this is something um, various U.S. officials have acknowledged. We have Brett McGurk, who is the former special envoy, uh, and he himself said it was the largest hotbed of al-Qaeda since 9-11. And more recently, Sky News interviewed another U.S. official, I can't remember the guy's name, and he said... He's a serving officer. Yeah, and he said, uh, he said something to the effect that Idlib attracts terrorists or something to that effect, essentially recognizing that whereas what Sky News, BBC, Channel 4, Guardian, etc., uh, media would um, omit the fact that <laughs> Idlib has a huge concentration of al-Qaeda terrorists. It does have civilians, of course, as well, yeah. and this is the whole thing. Well, the civilians are their prisoners. Absolutely, and, and as with every liberation prior to Idlib, with Ghouta, with uh, Aleppo, there's always the question of civilians being held hostage by these terrorists because the Syrians and the Russians open humanitarian corridors to facilitate these civilians leaving the areas to safe areas in the Syrian government areas. But the, the terrorists in those uh, regions uh, in, in past experiences have bombed the corridors. They, I, I have experience with this. They did this in November when I was on a humanitarian corridor in Aleppo and they bombed corridors in eastern Ghouta and when I went to um, Sinjar Idlib last year, last February, I tried to go to the Abu al-Duhur corridor and I wasn't able to because the security forces there said it had been attacked recently by al-Qaeda forces. So this is the thing, like civilians try to exit, sometimes they're successful, but largely they're prevented from doing so because of the terrorists within these areas. So where does Erdogan come in? Uh, he claimed at least and made, made agreements uh, with other powers uh, that uh, he wanted to see the defeat of the fanatic uh, terrorists. Why is he now using Turkish military power and by extension NATO uh, military assets to defend ISIS and Al-Qaeda hold up in Idlib. I think the key word um, in your introduction to this comment is claim. He claims he wants to defeat ISIS and Al-Qaeda. But Turkey, Erdogan has been backing terrorists in Syria, if not from the very beginning, from very early on. Uh, because of Erdogan's backing of terrorists in Syria, they were able to thieve Aleppo of its heavy industry. You talk to Syrian MP Farah Shahabi, and he will talk at length about Erdogan's responsibility for these terrorists taking, we're not talking like small machines, we're talking massive machinery um, in broad daylight trucking into Turkey. So they, he's responsible for thieving Aleppo of its industry. And he's also responsible for terrorists that were infiltrating into Syria to then attack Syrian civilians and do some of these heinous acts that you were talking about, beheading civilians, kidnapping civilians, raping civilians. Well, it, it's a well-trodden path. Uh, the jihadists, so-called, who left from this country to go and fight for the caliphate, as they called it, in Syria, all of them crossed into Syria through Turkey. And Turkey must have known the, the purpose of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, a, a group of uh, British Muslims arriving in Turkey and heading for the Syrian border. They weren't going there to see the ancient ruins. <laughs> well, uh, the late Serena Shem, um, may she rest in peace, was documenting terrorists infiltrating into Syria um, through Turkish borders, and she had been documenting them, uh, I believe, uh, terrorists and weaponry entering uh, via, uh, well, at least the weaponry via humanitarian aid trucks. 
And then she had uh, a press TV interview in which she said she feared for her life, that Turkish intelligence was threatening her, and the next day she had a car accident and is no longer with us. Indeed so. Uh, and I'm still in touch with her mother. As you say, God rest her soul. Now, the, uh, the Turkish angle, though, is not just a little local difficulty. Turkey is not only uh, a member of NATO, uh, but it is now confronting, literally, sometimes uh, uh, head to head, not just the Syrian armed forces, but the Russian. Uh, Russian jets are bombing uh, the fighters uh, allied to Turkey. This, therefore, has geopolitical uh, implications. What's going to happen? How is that going to be kept under control? I, I can't forecast how things will be kept under control. All I can say is that um, I, I'd like to rather focus on the media portrayal of what's happening because Syria has a, a, a legal right to fight terrorism and it has an obligation for the Syrian civilians to fight terrorism and to restore Idlib to peace. Because it's not only the civilians within Idlib that are, are subject to the terrorist um, rule, but it's civilians in areas where, uh, outside of Idlib, where, from where terrorist attacks occur. And I would refer to an attack on the Christian town of Mahardeh in September, um, I want to say 2018. I went to that town and interviewed one man who lost his three children, his mother and his wife, to such a terrorist attack. Now, those terrorists might have been on the periphery in, in northern Hama, but they might also have come from Idlib. And this is the point. Once, the, once these terrorists are eradicated, then these towns are no longer attacked. And in terms of media coverage, I'm sure you're aware, uh, George, that um, a week or so ago, Aleppo's countryside was restored to peace. And this meant a cessation of the terrorist attacks on the people of Aleppo. And I think a lot of people might not be aware these attacks were going on because Aleppo was liberated in 2016. But nonetheless, because the terrorists were still in the outskirts of Aleppo, they were able to continue attacking civilians, continue slaughtering civilians to the complete and utter silence of the Western corporate media. Not only that, but when uh, Idlib countryside was liberated, the whole city of Aleppo uh, was out on the streets Absolutely. celebrating hundreds of thousands of people. I never saw one inch of footage or one picture anywhere in the so-called mainstream media recording what was the clear evidence of the public in Aleppo, uh, their support for their government and their armies, liberation of the territory. Absolutely. And this is a repeat of December 2016 when Aleppo city was liberated. At that time, Syrians were on the streets celebrating and Western media, I was back in, in North America and Western media was saying Aleppo fell. Can you imagine? Aleppo was liberated from Al-Qaeda and other terrorist factions and Western media was saying it fell. Now people in Aleppo can walk freely, women can walk freely and dress how they choose to dress. And the Western media is trying to sell it that Aleppo fell. And one other thing, CNN recently, um, I noticed in their world news section an article saying the Syrian quote-unquote regime was bombing Eastern Ghouta. Well, I know you're aware that Eastern Ghouta was liberated in 2018. And CNN is pushing this lie. It's, it's a, it was a recycled lie from two years prior. They just updated the date. I don't think they added any new content. There was no, nothing of relevance to current news today. And my opinion is they were trying to push this to make uh, Western public think 
you know, this is happening all over, that, oh my gosh, the big bad Syrian government is bombing indiscriminately. But in fact, Eastern Ghouta has been restored to peace and is rebuilding, you know, and, and this is not something the Western media will allow viewers to know about. No, I mean, you know, the person who read the autocue might have the alibi of being stupid. Absolutely. Uh, but the, the people controlling this flow of information, disinformation and misinformation, uh, are, don't have the alibi of being stupid. So explain what you think their thought process is. How do you aspire to be a journalist only to sit down somewhere, probably at a paid event with some front for the intelligence services of Western countries and devise fake news like that? Uh, what kind of people are they, these people claiming to be journalists? Well, they're utter hypocrites because while they um, spew out this fake news, these lies, this propaganda and slander against Syria, Russia, and all the allies that are actually fighting terrorism in Syria, while they're doing this, they're at the same time, frankly, crying crocodile tears for Syrian civilians. They, they feign concern for Syrian civilians, but they don't give a damn about Syrian civilians. If they did, they would be supporting and reporting on the actual people defeating terrorism and restoring peace in Syria. I, I can't personally understand the mentality of a journalist that would abide by this sort of um, false reporting and war propaganda. Uh, but I think we've seen an increase in journalists who step down from such platforms because they cannot stomach it anymore. Yes, we, we interviewed uh, one of them, Mr. Haddad, uh, a week or two ago here. Um, but they don't just publish their fake news, they accuse people like you, people like me, uh, of being the source of the fake news. How do you cope with that? It's kind of easy for me. I've been uh, coping with false accusations for 50 years. Uh, does it hurt you? Does it damage you in any way? So it's only been about four years for me. And now I just at first, maybe I was like, what? How could you possibly say that? But now I'm, I'm like, oh, bravo, you just copy-pasted a slur that's been said about me a million times. The thing is, I don't care what they, they say about me or they think. I know what I'm reporting is true. I might sometimes when I'm speaking, you know, not be as eloquent and articulate as I want to be, but I know 100% that I'm reporting exactly what I saw, exactly what I heard in Syria. And if people want to you know, try to discredit me, go ahead. But as you said at the beginning, George, you know, now it's 2020. More and more people have come to realize that what was said about Syria in 2011, 12, 13 was lies, you know. And those people that stood their ground and were, were exposing that, as you said, have been vindicated. The bottom line is what I do isn't for career or for money. To the contrary, I put money into what I do. Uh, but it is because I know it's the right thing to do. And the Syrian people, um, you know, they've been ignored by corporate media. The corporate media has ignored, I don't know if I can come up with a percentage, let's say three quarters of the population. Off, um, that's a percentage offhand, but they've ignored the vast majority of Syrians in their reporting on Syria because it doesn't fit their narrative, which is demonizing anything to do with the Syrian leadership and army in order to facilitate a regime change or uh, enforcement of a new government in Syria. Regime change. Uh, we're going to be talking later about other regime change uh, operations uh, in Nicaragua and, and Venezuela. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been many successful regime change 
operations, but increasingly they're not successful. Right. They moved heaven and earth to destroy Syria, to destroy its uh, secular being, essence, a place where uh, a woman like you could sit with a man like me in public places, could argue, could wear what you like, could even drink alcohol if you were of that uh, mind, a place where uh, civil society actually existed, right. besieged by hordes who wanted to turn Syria into the Tora Bora, uh, the kind of society that exists uh, in parts of Saudi Arabia and in parts of the caves of, uh, of the Tora Bora in Afghanistan. Um, this was their game, and it's failed. The Syrians were never going to accept it never going to surrender to it. And their fight has been epic and historic, hasn't it? It's been heroic, absolutely heroic. When you have some of the most, no, not some, you have the most powerful nations on the world, in, in the world, arming terrorists, sending, you know, weapons, uh, inconceivable, powerful weapons to destroy Syria. And the Syrian people, who are the Syrian army, defending their land. And, and they, they come out um, victorious. It, it's phenomenal. I think the West thought that Syria would capitulate within a few months. And to the contrary, Syrians have, uh, have lost quite a bit. They've given, they've sacrificed, it's the word, they've sacrificed immensely. But they've done so because it's their country and their future and their people. And like you said about women, Syrian women are strong, intelligent, proud. Educated, cultured. Yes, very much so. They hold positions of power in the government, you know, and the, you mentioned them uh, wanting to turn, them basically wanting to turn Syria into some backward civilization. And this is true, and they haven't succeeded, but at the beginning you talked about the video um, that a, a terrorist sent to the mother of a Syrian soldier. This is common practice. This psych psychological torment is common practice. The village I mentioned, Mahardeh, when I was there, a, a man, a neighbor of the man that I was interviewing, showed me his mobile phone, and he said, the terrorists, you know, in whatever nearby area, are always sending us these videos, and these are taunting videos saying, you know, we're sending missiles your way, it's our way of saying good morning to you. And this is, this type of sick, a sadistic uh, torture happens all the time in Syria. And this is what the West is supporting, and this is what ignorant people, perhaps well-meaning, but come on, this is now 2020, if you're, if you're well-meaning and still so ignorant that you're supporting Al-Qaeda in Syria, then you really should just step back and take up knitting or something because you can't be supporting a, a revolution in Syria where the, the, the so-called rebels are hell-bent on destroying everything to do with the culture, the society, and just, just in public will execute people. When I went to Eastern Ghouta, to Douma, and, and went to the medical point where, where doctors were said to have treated um, victims of chemical weapons exposure. There was no, absolutely no um, evidence at all. No doctors that I spoke to, no medical staff that I spoke to uh, supported that theory. They said to the contrary, they were only treating normal cases of war injuries, suffocation, choking, uh, due to the bombings and basement conditions, etc. But when I was in the city of Duma walking around talking with people, what they wanted to tell me was how they had suffered under the rule of Jaysh al-Islam. And they wanted to tell me how Jaysh al-Islam would cut people's head off with a sword or, or point-blank execute them. And this was common throughout areas occupied by terrorist factions. So people in the West should really ask themselves what they're supporting. If you think you're supporting this grandiose, noble, revolutionary project, you're wrong. 
You're supporting sadistic savages who are trying to but have failed uh, to destroy Syria. Yeah, I, I don't think there are any such uh, revolutionaries uh, left, uh, but those that did uh, should hang their heads in shame for the years that they supported uh, all of this uh, going on. What happens to you now that, I mean, the war's not over, uh, but it is, it's not the, uh, the, the end of the beginning, it is the beginning of the end. Um, what are you planning to do now? You, you're so associated now in the minds of so many people uh, with Syria. Are you going to stick around there and cover the reconstruction, uh, cover the reforms that inevitably will happen? Or are you going to turn your journalistic attentions elsewhere? Well, thank you for asking. Um, I do plan in the near future and going back to highlight more of the positive, the, the reconstruction and other positive aspects of life in Syria. Um, but I haven't exclusively fully been, I, I was rather tunnel vision for a while on Syria, but I also last summer was in Donbass um, trying to um, share the suffering of civilians in frontline areas that are on a daily basis being shelled by Ukrainian forces. I'd like to go back there and, and do more work on that. And also, uh, uh, last year I was advocating for um, um, at least the attention to be shown on the, the plight of this journalist that was uh, imprisoned in Ukraine on utterly false charges. Um, he was in prison for over a year in really dire uh, circumstances. The, the system there, the, the prisons there, the detention centers, uh, according to him and other testimonies I've read, are horrendous. Uh, he was eventually released, um, but there's still many, many more journalists and other people being imprisoned in Ukraine on, uh, without absolutely no evidence and no charges. So that's something that I think, um, you know, when we talk about press freedom and we rightfully so advocate for the freedom of Julian Assange, I, I, I wish we would also consider the freedom of journalists who are being persecuted by Western allies like Ukraine or like Israel, uh, which is where it is common to just shoot Palestinian journalists without any sort of um, accountability. So there's, uh, th these are areas that, you know, I, I still, like yourself, I mean, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> I'm sorry, I wouldn't uh, compare myself to you because you have a long history of anti-imperialist uh, stances. But, but in a sense, like yourself, um, I'm trying to maintain, um, you know. A worldview. A worldview, yeah. How can and, people and help you? How can people support your work? Uh, well, there's PayPal. I do have Patreon, so. You're that on Patreon? I am, yeah. And How, what's, what's the title there? How do people find it? Yeah, I'm such a bad uh, promoter of self. I think it's Eva K. Bartlett or Eva Kareen Bartlett. And okay. uh, PayPal... Well, everyone should look for that. I'll do that tonight. PayPal's linked on my blog, ingaza.wordpress.com. And I really sincerely do appreciate everybody's uh, donations because, as you know, independent media doesn't pay. And no, uh, uh, neither I'm not, contrary doesn't. to popular belief, you made the on the payroll of any government. You're not doing it for the money. You're actually putting money in, yeah. which, of course, can't last forever uh, because you'll, you'll eventually run out. You and I are at St. Pancras Church on Tuesday night with the Honourable Craig Murray and many others yeah. uh, talking for Julian Assange. The doors open at six o'clock. I think we've got a little uh, ad uh, to punt that uh, later. So I'll take your leave now and see you on Tuesday. And hopefully a full church will await us in St. Pancras Church. Looking you know forward to it. Thank, Thank you. you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Who should the UK extradite to the US? Julian Assange, 7%, that's down two. Prince Andrew, 74%, that's down one. 
Poor Piers Morgan, I don't know what he's done to deserve it. 19% of you, that's up one, want to extradite Piers Morgan to the United States instead. I'm well past the time I should have taken this break. Now this week will be the trial of the century in Britain at least. It's not actually a trial, it's an extradition hearing, though unusually uh, the prisoner, uh, Julian Assange, locked up for the most part in isolation, in solitary confinement, with collapsing health, both physical and psychological, is being held in a maximum security outfit at Belmarsh Prison. An extradition hearing would not normally have that as a backdrop, but nothing about the Julian Assange case is normal. His uh, crimes, as alleged by the US Justice Department, are not crimes at all. They're not crimes anywhere, and they're certainly not crimes in Britain. It is not a crime to publish material which is true, which has been leaked to you by a whistleblower. If it was, we would never have had the Sunday Times Insight team. We would never have had groundbreaking uh, uh, front page splashes in, in the Daily Mail, in the Guardian, in the Times. Not often in the Times, but you know what I mean. We would never have had journalism as we know it if it was a crime for the newspaper or the television station to publish material which had been leaked. It might be an offence to steal that information in the first place, but it isn't an offence to publish it. After all, we only know that most of the British Parliament was fiddling its expenses because somebody stole a disk from the finance office, the fees office, in the British House of Commons and gave it to the Daily Telegraph, which put it on its front page for weeks and months and did a public service by so doing. The Daily Telegraph rightly won award after award after award for publishing this stolen material, this secret material. And thank God that they did. Otherwise, all these members of parliament would still be fiddling their expenses and maybe one or two of them still are. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But notwithstanding that what Julian is alleged to have done is not a crime in Britain, neither does the extradition treaty we have with the US allow someone to be extradited for political offenses. And this at the insistence of the American side. Fearful that Britain might seek the extradition of, I don't know, Irish Republican prisoners or runaways in the United States. And yet, and yet, unless the course of the court action radically changes this week, Julian Assange might end up spending 150 years in the US injustice system. Roy David is a writer of note and a former journalist, and he's here to talk to us about Julian Assange. Roy, thank you very much for joining us. It was a remarkable weekend. 
Chrissy Hind singing I Stand By You, uh, uh, Roger Waters, the giant cultural figure from Pink Floyd, uh, thousands of people out on the streets of London. There is an uptick, Roy, don't you feel, in yes, support sir. for Julian? Definitely, George. Uh, the, there is belatedly, oh yeah, I hasten to add, uh, a realisation of the injustice of the uh, government, the deep state of America, of our establishment, that has come to bear for 10 years on Julian Assange, uh, a man who's won 24 journalistic awards during this time for his new uh, innovative type of journalism that has made the mainstream media uh, cowed, fearful, jealous and uh, the result of all this of course kicks off tomorrow morning as you say in the first of uh, the extradition treaties to America. Um, it is going to last for one week and then we'll be adjourned until May, uh, three weeks set aside in May. My uh, interpretation of what will happen is uh, I don't think that this court uh, will uh, the, what, it won't be settled in this court, it will go to appeal and that could spin out the whole process for another 18 months, two years and, and, and let's hope, uh, if that does occur, that it won't be in the high security 23 hours a day locked up in Belmarsh high security prison. Well, I mean, it's, it's unconscionable, isn't it, Roy? This is a man guilty now of nothing. Uh, yeah. He was sentenced to 12 months for breaking bail. He's already served that. So he's yeah. now being held as an untried prisoner in an extradition case in solitary confinement in a maximum security prison. And as you describe it, might be there for the next two years. Yeah, exactly. Um, where, where he could be uh, e easily uh, kept within uh, a, a much more um, uh, uh, a much more uh, sensible prison system of, of the uh, of the UK within the UK. Um, George, I just wanted to say I'm going to tell you about an intriguing aspect of the whole Sweden-UK uh, business over these so-called, uh, falsely, in my opinion, sex allegations in Sweden uh, involving Sir Keir Starmer, who is, of course, as you know, Keir Starmer is one of the three people vying for uh, leadership of the UK Labour Party. But I just wanted to go back to August 2010 when the first inklings of these allegations uh, came to hand. And you will know, of course, but many of the listeners, viewers, 
listening to this won't know that within a very short period of time after the allegations were made and the statements were taken that uh, the senior prosecutor in Stockholm dismissed the case out of hand. Yeah. And it was only through another political move that the whole case was reignited uh, with various incestuous insinuations between several parties and uh, with the connivance, of course, at the background of the US pulling the strings of the UK, Australia and latterly uh, Ecuador. But we flash forward now to November 19 when Sweden actually dropped the uh, investigation. They said, the Swedish prosecution authority said, because so much time has passed since the allegation was made, the evidence has weakened considerably. Now, this is palpable nonsense. Words on paper, it's a he said, she said situation. Words on paper don't deteriorate in, a, in those 10 years. Statements don't change themselves. Witness statements don't weaken. Uh, words do not degrade. It, the whole uh, quote for me sums up the fact that the uh, how weak the initial case was. And this Keir Starmer of whom you speak, he told the Swedish authorities not to treat this like a normal extradition. He well, told yeah. them to keep it going, didn't he? Yeah, we, we thought for mm, three, four, five years when Sweden were prevaricating all this time, we thought it was from the Sweden angle, from the Swedish angle. They wouldn't come to interview him in, uh, in, in England. Uh, offers were made for um, uh, a testimony to be made in, uh, since we've been going on about it since October 2010. Uh, they refused Sweden. Uh, Sweden refused this, they refused that. They said this excuse, that excuse. And it was only four or five years, no, six, seven years later, through the indefatigable uh, work of the Italian investigative writer uh, Stephanie Marizzi, who, um, through a series of information, freedom of information uh, applications, several court battles that took actually four years before we saw anything, and we find out it was the UK Crown Prosecution Service that was actually delaying Sweden's, um, Sweden's uh, moves to come over here and uh, interview uh, Julian at, by that time at the embassy. But the CPS solicitor at that time uh, 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 Mr. Paul Close said in uh, 2011, please don't think this case is being dealt with as just another 
extradition. So it was RCPS that was putting Sweden off from sorting the case out quicker, which would have been uh, from a justice point of view of the women involved and a Julian Assange involvement, uh, at least equitable. They said in August 2012, when there was a story suggesting that Sweden would drop the case completely, which they didn't until another seven years, but there was a story going around that they would. And the man from CPS, from the Crown Prosecution Service, Mr. Paul Close, said, don't you dare get cold feet. So we have just a, not treated as just It's quite damning, uh, these two uh, quotations that the Italian writer uh, unearthed Marici, are, yeah. uh, are utterly damning oh. of uh, our Crown Prosecution Service and those that were handling uh, it. Just finally, Roy. The point is, George, that, that Keir Starmer was head of the Crown Prosecution Service during this time. He's got a case to answer, hasn't he? He's got some questions to answer, definitely. Not, um, not much sign of him uh, uh, answering them uh, so far. Uh, so, finally, Roy, um, there's almost no public access to the courtroom where this is going to be dealt with uh, tomorrow. Correct. Justice is supposed to be done, but also be seen to be done. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's pretty shabby, isn't it? It all makes Britain look a kind thing. of a, a bit banana republic, a bit police state, don't you think? Exactly. If this was in North Korea or Iran concerning a similar situation concerning Julian Assange, the British media here would be absolutely up in arms. Uh, and the fact that they're not says an awful lot about deep state establishment uh, backing of uh, the British media and uh, vice versa. Uh, George, before we go, I'd just like to say that one of the things that Julian faces, uh, apart from this 150 years, 175 year sentence, is that it would be uh, taken out with a, under special administrative measures known as a SAM, and uh, the Yale Law School. Uh, tell us that SAMs are the darkest corner of the US federal prison system, combining the brutality and isolation of maximum security units with additional restrictions that deny individuals almost any connection to the human world. Unbelievable. Roy, uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. That's uh, beginning this week then, the trial of Julian Assange. And a very sordid uh, affair it all is. Let me uh, see, I've got uh, Greg Sharkey. Is he on the phone, Greg? Greg, welcome. Greg is the organizer of this meeting that I'm speaking at on Tuesday, six o'clock, the doors open, at St. Pancras Church in Euston Road in London, uh, 6.30 it kicks off, and there's a galere of uh, speakers, uh, Eva Bartlett being uh, one of them, the Honourable Craig Murray being another, myself a third, and 
The man who's organized all of it, and this is not the first time he's done it, is a very, very redoubtable campaigner uh, from the north of Ireland by the name of Greg Sharkey, and he's on the line now. Greg. Hello, George. How are you? Good. Uh, now, uh, I suppose your star guest is Peter Lavelle, the host of Crosstalk. He doesn't yeah, travel. Much, so, yeah. He doesn't travel much, and he doesn't do much speaking. He does it all on screen. But he's coming all the way to London to speak at our meeting. It's going to be quite an event. Yeah, yeah, it's, it certainly will, George. Well, the, uh, unlike previous events, like you, you, you spoke, I think, at four previous events now, but un, unlike the previous events where it's just straight speaker after speaker, we'll have uh, five, five speakers to begin with, yourself, Eva, Alexander McCurs, Peter Lavelle, and Craig Murray, you'll give maybe like a 15-minute speech, followed then by uh, a kind of a, like a cross-talk, a live cross-talk in, in the church where you'll have Peter Lavelle do his usual hosting, and uh, we'll, we'll have Eva and uh, Mike, Bar Mike Barson from the British band Madness. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah Mike, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That'll be terrific. And, uh, yeah, and Judy, Judy Barr, Brar from the Workers' Party. Yeah. Uh, a, a comrade of yourself, yeah. and uh, Hugh Norrie, uh, coming over from America with Consortium News. So that's uh, that'll be the it's, format. It's going to be uh, yeah. terrific. Uh, admission free, is it? No, no, it's eight, eight, eight pounds, George, through your Eventbrite, and you can pay at the door as well. But the, the, the money uh, there's goes the, to, Yeah, there's to the, the graphic there. Forgive me. Yeah, yeah. so eight pounds. Uh, yeah. And that is, of course, uh, to pay for the venue and the travel costs of the international people uh, that, are, that are coming. Uh, it, it's likely to be a terrific night. I'm looking forward to it very much, uh, Greg. It's a great pity yeah. that we're still having to campaign on this. Uh, once Absolutely. upon a time, I thought we might, uh, we might not have to, but it seems that we're in for, a, for a, the long haul on this, Greg. Well, George, I, I agree with, with your sentiments about, you know, the, we're starting to see some, some more positive traction on, on the case. We are. Uh, you know, we've, we've had, we've had uh, Jeremy Corbyn, you know, Johnny come lately maybe a bit, but uh, at least he has come out and sort of... Uh, well, better late than up. never, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah and absolutely. even uh, John McDonnell, who never said a single That's word right. about yeah, it, yeah. is now yeah. uh, campaigning wholeheartedly. And as I say, better late than never. Absolutely, George. And, uh, and uh, another sentiment that you said that, you know, you'd rather take your chances in front of a British judge than in front of uh, the, the, the political system. I would, yeah. Not everyone uh, agrees with me, but uh, I'm not saying that there are not problems with the judiciary in Britain. No. Uh, but they're relatively speaking, well, as you put it, they're quoting me. I'd rather take my chances in front of a British judge than a British politician or yeah, a British newspaper editor, if you get my drift. Greg, I'll see, you. I'll see you on Tuesday. I hope as many people as possible that are watching or listening to the show and who can get to London, it's very near the railway station, St Pancras Church, doors open yeah. at 6 o'clock in King's Cross. Thanks very much, Greg Sharkey, for organising it. Um, here from my old friend Alex McGuigan, again in Belfast. Erdogan is involved in a land grab from Syria. Turkey's uh, Daesh collusion... Are, is well documented. The land grab is also to build a supposed Kurdish-free buffer zone. Erdogan's activities in Libya 
are worth watching now too. Great show. Be careful filming. No lone walks in the woods. <laughs> I was filming uh, in a remote place uh, for my Killing Kelly documentary on Friday. My crew and I, uh, under our wonderful director, Sean Murray, award-winning, multiple award-winning director, uh, I, I did make the point as we were heading into the wilderness, let's not go for any walks in the woods. Thanks for that, Alex. Uh, Rob says, Sky News, Alex Crawford has no shame, indeed not. Uh, and uh, this from Paul. I wonder if the gentleman that called from New York earlier, I think his name was Chuck, could have a word with his longtime friend Bernie Sanders and ask him to come on your show. I think it would be wonderful for the listeners, viewers, to hear directly what he has to say. Yeah, I think Bernie's got enough problems uh, at the moment without uh, appearing on our show. Maybe I'll get to interview him in the White House. Uh, let's hope so. Let me take a quick break. Radio Sputnik. Tune in every Wednesday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker and John Kiriakou for a regular segment called Beyond Nuclear, where Brian and John discuss nuclear issues, including weapons, energy, waste, and the future of nuclear technology in the United States with Kevin Camps, the radioactive waste watchdog at the organization Beyond Nuclear. Listen on Wednesdays right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. Agent Sideways says, Eva Bartlett, what a human being. We are grateful for the work that you do. Absolutely humbling. Shame on our mainstream media and the propaganda we are bombarded with. And Scouse Alarm, my old pal up in Liverpool, says, it's very sad for me watching the Bernie Sanders surge in America when we in Britain are going to be stuck with Boris Johnson for the next four plus years and the rest, mate. Uh, what a missed opportunity the Corbyn project was. And Chris Strange says we should extradite nobody to the US until Anne Sakulas has come back here to face justice. Oh, there's another poll. You've only got half an hour or so left now to vote on it. Should the BBC license fee be abolished? A, yes. B, no. C, replaced with a subscription. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. And Laura, is on the line from Alaska. How could I refuse a call from Alaska? Laura, welcome. Thank you so very much, Mr. Galloway. It's the first call we've ever a... had from Alaska. Well, how wonderful. It's the first time I've been able to speak with one of my heroes. Thank you very much. I remember, watching, I remember watching when you came before our joke of a Congress. And that was I a was good so day overjoyed to hear you say the words, I do not come as the accused, but I come as the accuser. Indeed, the words of John McLean, so the great Scottish revolutionary, yeah. Thanks, Laura. Now, uh, um, you want to talk about Assange? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Um, I'm a lifelong Alaskan. I'm a fisherman. I don't have the internet until I can come into town, but I bookmark things to read because I'm, an, I'm a human being that believes that I have a a universal right to the truth. And um, Julian and WikiLeaks created a space for people in this world to have the power of knowledge and truth. 
And in all the times of his publishing, he never, ever got a story wrong. His reporting spanned way past the United States. He's always exposed empire. And your former um, guest, Roy uh, David, used a word I was actually going to use was the incestuous relationship. The United States is a young nation, but it is not a democracy by any means whatsoever from its inception. We are a repository for multinational corporations, multinational interests, and ancestors relationships with old empires. The earth to them is a chessboard. And Julian... Um, allowed people to see the machinations of their own nations in hopes that we would stand together united against the machinations of our own nations and rise up to stand to the moment. Well, we're we God, did, uh, God bless you, Laura. I must say the... But uh, New York, the New York caller... The New York caller called and asked about why the ICC didn't get involved. And I wanted to reply to him that the International Criminal Court, which was um, created, I believe, in 1998, and um, the U.S. helped kind of create the um, ICC, but they abandoned it. Yeah, um, yeah. It doesn't apply to them. Her. It doesn't apply to them, Laura, even though uh, it right. must apply they, to, they to the rest of us. Yeah, yes, sir. I've got just because of My the hour, ju just because of the hour, I need to cut you short. But I'm bound to say, as I'm sure everyone listening is saying, fisher folk in Alaska are pretty politically advanced. Thank you for that wonderful call. Simon is in London on Prince Andrew and Assange. Go ahead, Simon. Hi, doing, George. You okay? Yeah, by the grace of God, I'm good. Thank you. That's good. Did you watch the fight yesterday, by the way, with yes. Tyson Fury? Yes. Yeah, I just wanted to say congratulations to Tyson Fury on his wonderful the gypsy, achievement. The Gypsy King. The is, Gypsy King, yeah. Fantastic. I, I mean, I have nothing against Wilder, of course. And as, uh, as uh, Fury said himself, he will be back. But the King, the king is back on his crown. And I, I tell you, I couldn't yes. be any happier than I am about that. Yeah, I was listening to an earlier call. I think uh, it was a guy from uh, somewhere outside Glasgow about, uh, called Steve, as I said, and he was in, in a lot of disagreement with yourself regarding yes. the uh, issue of Prince Andrew. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at it in a different way. I think Prince Andrew was quite... Uh, uh, it was quite disgusting what he did. Uh, he's getting criticised uh, for his rather questionable and disgraceful liaisons with Jeffrey Epstein. However, one, the way I'm looking at it at the moment is, why is it the society thinks that's bad? Which it is bad, of course, when, on the other hand, you've got someone like Brigitte Macron, who seduced Emmanuel Macron when he was the age of 14 and when she was 30-odd. How, how, how do you know that, Simon? From the press. Yeah, I'm not from their own, from their own, uh, from, from, from I, I, mean, I know that she was his teacher, but I've never heard it alleged that she criminally behaved criminally towards him. Well, I've, that's I've, what never, the... I've never heard that, and I've certainly seen no evidence uh, of it. But thank but, you, well, the... uh, thank you, Simon, anyway. And uh, if that turns out not to be true, my apologies.
indeed, to the Macrons. Now it's uh, time for the third inductee of the mother of all talk shows, Hall of Fame. We've been receiving suggestions and, uh, and nominations uh, all week. Uh, and be sure to keep them coming in on email, on the Twitter feed, Motes TV, or through me directly, uh, at George Galloway. You can uh, email us, of course, also. Uh, but the nomination this week goes to Bernie Sanders. I've called it for Bernie Sanders already. Bernie's courage and the promise, the possibility that he brings uh, with him is so incredible, so incredibly important that I thought it might just save his life if he's in our Hall of Fame. The more we talk, as an earlier correspondent said, the more we talk about Bernie and the need to keep him safe, the more we cherish that which has now emerged, the better, at least, we'll be able to protect him. Bernie Sanders, as I spoke at some length earlier, has been in politics for 40 years, actually a little more than 40 years. He's 77 years old. He's run as an independent, been elected as an independent. He's a socialist, a self-declared one. He's standing up for the working class. He is the workers' candidate. He's the workers' Queen's Council. He's the workers' champion. Of course, he's interested in other things. He's interested in uh, uh, people's other identities, although it's frequently hurled at him that he's not interested enough in race, that he's not interested enough in gender and in sexual politics. Of course he's interested in such things. But he sees that the number one, the most important and above all unifying characteristic of the mass of the people of America is that they are working class and he is the working class candidate. He's coming under remorseless attack and he will come under still more remorseless attack. His life may very well be imperiled and therefore I have no hesitation in nominating Senator Bernard Sanders of Vermont to the Hall of Fame of the mother of all talk shows. And just as vehemently, I nominate for the wall of shame the second nominee for the wall of shame. Last week, it was Margaret Thatcher. This week, it is her political stepchild. It is the British Prime Minister for 10 years, three elections, Tony Blair. Tony Blair is a war criminal who should be on trial at The Hague for crimes against humanity, for war crimes, who should be on trial at the bar of the House of Commons for the crime of misleading willfully the British Parliament, though many of them were quite happy to be misled, for the crime of misleading 
our armed forces sent into battle, ill-clad, ill-armed, ill-informed, and above all on the basis of a gigantic lie. For crimes against Her Majesty, whose armed forces they are, whose parliament it is, I was there. I was there throughout. I had to walk around in that parliament, sit on the same side in that parliament as Tony Blair. I only knew he was lying when his lips were moving. I once tried to get a side view to see if his nose grew like Pinocchio when he was lying, but lying he was. He lied and lied and lied the country into a disastrous war, a gigantic crime, a gigantic blunder, and yet he still commands the British media and political class, and that is the unkindest cut of all. If he had done what he did in the way that Bush did what he did, and retired in Bush's case to his presidential library to fill in his coloring books. If Blair had retired to the country to write his memoirs, gone to the Lords to pick up his record amount of expenses, that would have been one thing. But Tony Blair is still a major factor in British politics. He failed to destroy Brexit, but he has succeeded in destroying Labour. He has succeeded in ensuring that Labour, once new Labour, is about to become new, new Labour, and very soon the ballot papers go out on Monday, and the aforementioned Sir Keir Starmer, who is Blair without the laughs, Blair without the energy, Blair without the charisma, Blair without the elan, Sir Keir, the photocopy of Tony Blair, is going to win a thumping victory and become the leader of the Labour Party. And thus, Tony Blair will continue to rule, despite everything that he did to so many, including ending the lives of more than a million people and counting. So the second of the members of the wall of shame is the far from right honorable Tony Blair. Now there's a caller in Japan, I better go there. Tonio in Japan, let me hear you, go ahead. Uh, hello, Mr. George Galloway, thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm very, uh, it's a privilege um, and I've always been a very big fan of, of your show and your talks and your speeches, so I'm, I'm following you very much. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to say, basically, I'm from South America, Venezuela. Um, my name is Tonio, actually, Lario Antonio Oliva. Um, Tonio is my middle name, so everybody calls me by Tonio. Um, I've been in Japan for 20 years, uh, more than 20 years. I came just when Chavez became into power. Um, and uh, I just wanted to comment about, um, first of all, thank you for, you know, keeping the awareness around what's happening between the U.S., Venezuela, other countries, and, you know, different views around, like, extreme views 
um, around my country, which are not necessarily the truth. Um, so I also wanted to speak about um, uh, one thing is that you know if, about Chavez. Um, I'm I'm also a, I'm a pro Chavez person, and I did as many of the middle to high class level people in Venezuela did this. And one of the reasons that I want to share this with you is because of the financial crisis that happened in Venezuela in 1994 and 1995 when everybody lost their money uh, because of the bankers. And um, that's when uh, the popularity of Chavez increased and many people from the uh, mid-levels uh, society in itself you know, um, voted for him. Um, nonetheless, I have mixed views about this, and I wanted to ask you about what is right and wrong in these cases, you know, because it's really complex. And um, one thing is that he, he actually did a coup uh, onto the government, and he went to jail. And, and then Rafael Caldera, the president in 1998, he actually let him outside, um, he, he liberated him from, from jail. So how can a person that did a coup on a government then become a candidate for presidency. Well, he did, and he won, 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 and he won. Chavez won more elections, more referenda than any other politician on the earth. I know because I was there participating in those elections. Well, you're right. You're absolutely right. So I think I believe in that, right? I believe in democracy that that happens, and um, so, but. It, yeah, in, in terms of the society, I think in what well, we have the country today, not only because of the U.S. sanctions that we have received, because of Guaido and, you know, all this... How do you um, feel about know. Guaido, Antonio? Guaido, he's a... I think, I think he's not really... I mean, he has no power, actually, in, in Venezuela. We all think we, we don't have... He has no uh, any, any real power. He's just backed up by the U.S. So... Um, there's no uh, absolute... Um, he's got plenty of money, though. He, he's been given uh, quite a bit of uh, Venezuela's sovereign wealth that has been stolen by various countries, including mine. Yes. Well, well they, they said so, yeah. Um, you have part of the gold in your, in your, in your reserves. Yeah, uh, um, the moral of that story, Antonio, is never give Britain your gold reserves. Never, ever. Trust the empire with your crown jewels. Right. So, I mean, and, and Chavez has been talking about this, you know, the world should be a, what's the word, poli... Um, multipolar? A polar, a more, a multipolar, yes, yeah. multipolar uh, world, and uh, not this imperialism, you know. And you, as you know, the, there are military bases from the U.S., 150-plus over the world. Um, I mean, Japan, you know, I, I know, and every time I work with my colleagues, every time there comes a day that actually that doomsday that came, you know, the bombs, you know, coming into Hiroshima, Nagasaki, there's always a moment of silence, and they always say, well, you know, we are the only country in the world, in the whole history of the humanity that has, has you know, yeah. been bombed. And not once, not once, but twice. Uh, Tony, but I'm twice. fascinated uh, talking to you, but the hour is such that I need to press on. Uh, uh, feel free to call back any time to continue this discussion. Thank you very much indeed. I've got to take a call from John in Berkshire in England. Go ahead, John. Hi, Josh. Uh, good talk show every Sunday as usual. 
Thank you very much. Uh, That's not a Berkshire accent, I must say. No, it's no Scottish brother. Uh, mother will born and bred. Mother will. I, I thought it was Lanarkshire. Go ahead, John. Yeah. The thing I'm a bit concerned about Britain just now is the floods. Yes. It's not been the top story in the news. It's been the furthest for the politicians' minds. Don't want to know about it. Only Corbyn. They don't. Only Corbyn yeah. uh, has actually That's even right. even been been up there. That's right. Aye, he's been there to see it. But the thing is, the Thames barrier was built for a reason, because London flooded. If London had to flood now, that's the heart of Britain stopped. Mm -hmm. Britain would just collapse. Mm -hmm. These people that are living in villages in the south of Scotland, the north of England, Wales and the south of England are living this year after year after year. Mm. It's short in their life. It must be terrible on their mental health as well as their finances and as well as their careers. Not only that, waking up in a dark home, I presume it's not nice. No, definitely. The government, the government have done nothing, uh, even though this happens regularly. Uh, and if yeah. it happened in London, uh, as you say, it would be the end of the world. Uh, uh, you know, what does it take? Do we need uh, uh, a deluge such as afflicted the world at the time of Noah? What, what exactly are we paying our taxes and electing our government for? That's true. Even Martin Sheen, the actor, he was on uh, Sky News the other day and he's made a big donation, a GoFund page, to help the victims of the floods in yeah, Wales. Yeah, there's hundreds of thousands you know, being raised, but it's a disgrace that private charity is having to take the place of what should be state investment in flood protection and uh, uh, state uh, uh, relief for the people who have been afflicted. That's true, that is very true, because these people have got to get up in the morning and either go to their work or if they can't get to work. There was a guy on the news the other day who had his home and he had a pub. That is completely ruined now mm. and might never be up well, and I, again. As I say, I was travelling... Yeah, I, I, mean, I was going to say, are these people insured for that? Because I don't think a lot of them well, are. Well, some of them will be, but be some of them uh, won't be. And even those that are insured will find it more difficult to get insured in the future once the companies yeah. had to pay out on this. I, as I said, I was travelling on Friday. I don't want to say where I was, but I did right, pass yeah. by uh, some horrendous flooding. And I was actually yeah, quite lucky nice. that the train was able to... Uh, do it. John, thanks uh, for the call. I need to get rid of you because there's a legend on the line. It's Lizzie in Gloucestershire. Lizzie, welcome. Hi, George. How are you? I'm good. When, the, when a legend comes on the line, everyone else has to get off it. So <laughs> yes, Scarper. Now, now, Scarper. Now, now he's Scarpered. You can tell me what you think. Well, I wanted to... I, there are lots of things that I would like to argue with you about. but I have uh, no doubt about I, that. <laughs> I always find myself agreeing with you, but um, hopefully tonight we can have a very uh, agreeable disagreement. Okay. Um, about Prince Andrew, we can't deport him or, or uh, chuck him out to America because they'd love him, wouldn't they? Uh, not so sure. <laughs> the, the, Epstein, the Epstein case uh, is cutting, uh, cutting through in America now. Uh, when people, yeah, when people see the scale of the the perfidy of this man and his proximity to power, 
and powerful people and the wealthiest of people and the dirty deeds that he was involved in, more of which uh, emerge almost every day. Uh, no, I think that uh, Prince Andrew uh, would not uh, get a ticker tape welcome in the United States, really. But surely, you know, like, um, I'm trying to think, Kentucky Fried Chicken or who's that colonel? Colonel um, Sanders. Surely, yeah, I'm sure there are several fast food franchises that would benefit from his... Uh, from his going there, <laughs> Well, uh, as someone joked today, you know he claimed he never sweats, therefore that couldn't have been him uh, yeah, in, right. that was sweating yeah. in the nightclub. I bet, I bet he's sweating now uh, because his, he, his personal protection officer has, really just, uh, has just blown the whistle on his so-called alibi. Um, and what what really struck me is that um, you know how uh, his her son, the Queen's son, going to uh, America or Canada to create a life of his own for him and his family um, were, was a huge problem. Yet they defend Prince Andrew to the hills. <laughs> well, uh, Prince Andrew had at least one set of bells ringing for him on his 60th birthday this week at Westminster Abbey. Uh, I actually heard them by chance uh, myself, but no other church, I think, maybe one or two in the north of Ireland, uh, rang their bells or put out their flags. He's become persona non grata, really, in England. Yes, well, anyway, uh, unbelievable. What else right, would well, you like to say? The other thing was that Piers Morgan, please, I don't know what your relationship is with him at the moment, but... The few times that he's had you on his show, he's been uh, obnoxious, uh, as, as usual. Well, and at least he, he has me on his show. He's, well, the, he's the only one that does. <laughs> yeah, but they, they hardly ever invite you for the reason that they give you, do they? You know, they, uh, they invite know. you for a reason and then they, then no, they no. uh, spine you I, when I, you I get there. First of all, I like uh, Piers Morgan. Uh, I can't uh, account for the people I like or don't like in life, and neither should anyone require me to. It's everyone's right to like people or not like them according to how they have been to them. And, yeah. uh, and uh, Piers Morgan has always been kind to me. But it's much more important than that personal issue uh, because I was around, as were you, uh, at the time of the Iraq war. And yeah. Piers Morgan was the editor of then one of Britain's most important newspapers, the Daily Mirror. And Piers, who was a part of the establishment, who could easily have followed Blair, refused to follow Blair. He absolutely refused to support the war. And, and ever more zealously, he used the Daily Mirror in support of the anti-war cause and in support of the Stop the War Coalition. And on the day of February 15th, the biggest ever demonstration in British history, he gave over the whole of the Daily Mirror to our demonstration. He published oh, yeah. a map on the front page of where people could go, how they could join the demo and so on. So I'll never forget that, Lizzie. And I'll yeah. always respect him for that because it would have been far easier for him. In the end, as you know, he got sacked. Yeah. as the editor. It would have been far easier for Piers Morgan to go along with the establishment like almost everyone else did. But he yeah. didn't. He stood up. And a man that stands up for what he believes in 
is to be respected, I think. And that's why, in the end, I've got to tell you that I like them. Last word to you, Lizzie. Well, that, that was it, really. I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, your polls are always interesting. I don't know who composes them. Uh, sometimes I think it's you, and sometimes I think it's someone in the back room. It's someone but, in the um, back room, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's one of the oldest men still working in Britain. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll oh, well, tell you when good. I see you. I'll tell yeah. you when I see you. Lizzie, oh, I... thank you very much. A legend. Uh, in our lifetime and probably the last call of the evening I think Chris in Colchester on Sanders takes a different view that's why he's up next Chris go ahead hi George hi um, just very quickly did you watch the boxing I did oh the, good the gypsy king all hail yeah. the gypsy king king of the world yeah I oh. thought he was magnificent I was sure that good. he would win I was absolutely sure that he would win uh, yeah um I'm also sure that City are going to beat Real Madrid uh, on Wednesday. So um, if you follow my tips, take that one. Anyway, go I ahead. Might <laughs> I might do. Cheers, George. Uh, yeah, well, I'm just, just a few things about Sanders. I do worry that it's, it's getting a bit, of, a bit like a cult. Um, and I agree with you. I think he could, he could have beaten Trump in 2016. Yeah. Um, and he Imagine how much the different the world would have been if he had. Well, I I'm not sure I agree with you. Well, it would have been different, yeah. yeah. But um, I think, it, and it would have been an interesting uh, race to see, actually, that uh, Sanders versus Trump. Yeah. Then, I yeah. think it would have been more about policies, whereas this time, uh, if it happens, I think it could get really nasty. Um, I think, you know, Trump's going to play some some weird cards, and I'm worried Sanders will go down the, the identitarian sort of uh, road, which he seems to be be stuck on this time, whereas before no, he's been more... I, I think the politics. identitarians don't like uh, Bernie because he, he only pays lip service uh, to them. He talks about the economy and the workers and, and uh, economistic issues. He talks about wages and uh, student tuition fees and health care and so on. Uh, of course, he, ha he pays lip service now and again to these identity politics issues, Chris, but I don't think it's fair to uh, hang that... Uh, around his neck. He's not, he's not like the British Labour Party. He's not, he's not actually a liberal. Well, I mean, what, what about the, um, the college stuff? I think we need to address why it's so expensive, why it's so overpriced, and that's because of the Department of Education that uh, gets loans because it's guaranteed loans, and then they charge students and make billions a year out of it. Yeah, so rather absolutely. than just saying free, free this, free that, we've got to address why it's expensive. Why it's expensive. Uh, no, I agree. I've got, to, I've got to clear you off the line because there's another legend turn up. It's Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hi, George. Hi. Um, very serious show tonight and worrying, and mm -hmm. I hope the Sands meeting goes well Tuesday. Thank you. But, this is the lightest subject end of the show. Um, I don't like her national anthem, George. No, I no. Don't like it's a dirge. I can't believe even the Queen likes it. Well, but she's fed up with it. Yeah. I mean... She's been um, listening to it a long time right now. God, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I just need changing, and quite soon, because, you know, I'm getting old. Well, the what do you I think? Would, what's your suggestion? I vow to thee my country. The words... Um, by Richard Kipling, and the music, I think, was Holst Planets, the Jupiter. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it's a lovely word, it? It's like the worst one, Land of My Fathers. Um, 
I vote in my country. All right, everyone, everyone at the end of the show, go to that. I vow to thee, my country. That's Norma's suggestion for the next national anthem. Thanks, uh, Norma. Sorry it uh, was so short. Should the BBC licence fee be abolished? A, yes, 69%. B, no, 18%. C, replaced with a subscription, 13%. Such good sense our audience has. Don't forget my debut novel, Queensway. I spoke about it earlier. There it is there on your screen. You can get it at info at georgegalloway.com. And I'm signing and dedicating the first 1,000 copies. And we're getting there quite fast. So if you want a signed, dedicated copy, order it now, info at georgegalloway.com. And I'm told to plug the podcast. We've got a podcast. Ma, we've got a podcast. It's available on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, Anchor.fm, and wherever you get your podcasts, whatever any of those words mean. Because um, although my wife knows, and she put that order up, I've actually no idea what a podcast is or what any of those platforms are. But you can get our podcast on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, and Anchor.fm, and wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I'll get mine from wherever I get my uh, podcast. It's been marvelous uh, for me. I hope it was uh, also for you. Don't forget the uh, meeting for Julian Assange on Tuesday night at six o'clock at the St. Pancras Church in Euston Road, just near these stations. Uh, the doors open at six o'clock. It kicks off around 6.30. It's very important that everyone comes to the aid of Julian Assange because the time will come when your children, your grandchildren, will ask you, Mommy, Daddy, what did you do for Julian Assange, for freedom of speech and expression? What did you do to stop these criminals trying to drag Julian Assange away in chains? Been marvelous. Thanks for watching.